1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
2: I'm Avery Schmitz, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 21st, 2023. This past Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Hawk v. United States, a case which challenges prior interpretations of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act to protect state-owned entities. For today's archive episode, I chose to revisit a conversation from December 11th, 2020 in which Scott Anderson sat down with Professors Shimen Keitner and Ingrid Wirth to discuss the Supreme Court's earlier rulings on foreign sovereign immunity and possible exceptions which have been raised by federal legislators. This snapshot captured over two years ago complements Wednesday's episode of the Lawfare podcast, wherein Anderson, again joined by Keitner and Wirth, discussed interpretations of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act under Hallbank for United States and the possible outcomes of the case now pending before the court.
3: Scott R. Anderson, and this is The Lawfare Podcast for December 11th, 2020. This week, the Supreme Court returned once again to the complex and sometimes controversial Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, or FSIA, that protects foreign sovereigns from litigation before U.S. courts. At the same time, Congress is once again debating new exceptions to the protections provided by the FSIA on issues ranging from cybercrime to the coronavirus pandemic an effort that may risk violating international law and exposing the United States to similar lawsuits overseas. To discuss these developments and where they may be headed, I sat down with two leading scholars on sovereign immunity issues, Shemin Keitner, a professor at the UC Hastings School of Law and a former counselor on international law at the U.S. State Department, and Ingrid Wirth, a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School and one of the reporters for the American Law Institute's fourth restatement on U.S. foreign relations law. It's the Lawfare podcast for December 11th the past, present, and future of Sovereign Immunity. So a few days ago, the U.S. Supreme Court heard argument in not one but two cases relating to something that has become something of a perennial issue for those who follow the legal side of foreign relations and national security, particularly in the last 10 years or so. But going back further than that as well, And that, that's this question of sovereign immunity and the law that kind of implements a lot of sovereign immunity law in the United States, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Ingrid, can I turn to you? Tell us a little bit about these cases and what they say about the current state of the debate around sovereign immunity, FSIA issues here in the United States.
4: Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. And thank you for the opportunity to be here. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is a comprehensive statute that governs lawsuits against foreign nations. So these particular cases involve defendants like Germany, Hungary, the Ministry of Culture in a German state. Um, the Hungarian National Railroad, if you want to sue these kinds of defendants in the United States, you must comply with the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and it makes foreign states and their agencies and instrumentalities presumptively immune from suit. Now, both of these cases involve the expropriation exception to immunity, in order to invoke that exception, the case needs to involve rights in property taken in violation of international law. One of the issues involved in both of the cases is if the expropriation or another exception applies, can courts decline to hear the case based on the doctrine of international comedy? So basically, the question the court wrestled with was, the justices wrestled with, was does the doctrine of international comedy survive the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, That question gets us into interesting questions about whether the executive branch or courts should resolve cases or make decisions with important foreign policy implications. Uh, The second issue arises in particular in the Philip case, which involves some wonderful medieval religious art that you can see in Berlin. It was owned by a consortium of Jewish art dealers, and it was sold under duress to the Prussian government in 1935. The question is whether the expropriation exception applies when the country is expropriating the property of its own citizens. Um, The answer to that question is usually no, but because this particular case is linked to a genocidal taking, the plaintiffs argue there's a violation of international law, even if the taking is against one of their own citizens. That case, too, involves how much we should defer to the executive branch, which wants us to read the statute in one way, the plaintiffs want us to read it in another. And both of the cases, to my mind, raise this interesting question. To what extent should the United States be the right forum for resolving Nazi-era claims, expropriation claims, against Hungary and Germany, respectively?
3: You know, that kind of overview that Ingrid just gave us of these cases really, in my mind, illustrates the way the FSIA sits at the intersection, or in a way, kind of two different intersections that it, it tries to mediate. One is between domestic law and international law, sovereign immunity as a concept, international law, and for which the United States has obligations to respect in certain regards. But then the FSIA implements that and takes a somewhat idiosyncratic U.S. view of it in some ways. And then the other intersection is between law and policy, the need to reach legal outcomes, but in an area that often has major foreign policy ramifications where the executive branch has strong views among other actors. And it, obviously that makes this law somewhat not unique, but exceptional in certain regards of, of striking this difficult balancing act. Shemin, let me, let me turn to you for just kind of a little bit of a background or explainer. How is it that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the FSIA, as uh, it's referred to by its common acronym, ended up filling this role at the intersection of these difficult questions? And and how does it kind of operate in practice today?
1: Well, hi, Scott, and I'm also very glad to be here with both of you. So the FSIA, uh, as Ingrid mentioned, was enacted in 1976 to provide a comprehensive judicially applicable answer to the question of whether certain categories of defendants were amenable to suit in U.S. courts. And uh, although the FSA doesn't say this explicitly, I think the the best understanding is that it really was focused on uh, civil jurisdiction, civil suits. So before 1976, the law of foreign sovereign immunity had evolved both as a matter of international law and, of course, as implemented in U.S. courts. The earliest case often cited with reference to foreign sovereign immunity is the Schooner Exchange case in which Chief Justice John Marshall in 1812 said that the uh, nation has exclusive territorial sovereignty, but that Uh, other foreign sovereigns who enter the nation's territory do so under an implicit license, essentially, that they won't be uh, subject to suit in domestic courts while they're here. And so that foundational idea is codified in the FSIA. But of course, it took, you know, well more than a century to codify it. The interim period, which I've actually discussed in an article titled Between Law and Diplomacy, so very much reflecting that point, uh, involved a lot of cases against foreign ships that came into U.S. ports. And courts had to figure out, is this a ship that is a purely private ship on a purely private mission, in which case there was obviously jurisdiction? Uh, Is it a public ship of war of a friendly foreign sovereign, as was the Schooner Exchange, in which case it is beyond U.S. jurisdiction, even though it's sitting there, in a U.S. port, uh, or is it some combination of the two? Is it a merchant vessel owned by a foreign state? And in that case, how do we split the difference? On the one hand, we want to make sure that claimants have access to courts to obtain judicially enforceable remedies. On the other hand, there is this idea that, that John Marshall emphasized of both uh, sovereign equality among nation states, and then even more concretely, the need for states to conduct diplomacy and to be able to interact with each other without this threat of suit. And so over time, courts grappled with this issue, the State Department certainly grappled with this issue. And in 1952, the department actually came out with the so-called Tate letter, uh, signed by then acting legal advisor, Jack Tate, saying, here's what we're going to do. We've been doing this for a while, but just so everyone's on the same page, we see that international law is starting to differentiate between the commercial activities engaged in by foreign states and their public or sovereign activities. And it's going to be our policy to allow jurisdiction, to exercise jurisdiction with respect to the commercial activities, even of foreign states and foreign sovereigns, but not with respect to their public activities. The tricky thing was at that point, the State Department was quite active in making what it called suggestions to court of immunity. And so foreign states, quite understandably, uh, would pester the State Department for a suggestion of immunity. And when that situation became untenable and when the results of that petitioning process became unpredictable as they were, uh, Congress at the request of the State Department and the Department of Justice stepped in and came up with this act that we're talking about that endeavored to clarify all of these issues, although, as Monday's cases show, certainly left a number of issues unresolved as well.
4: Scott, if I might jump in there, I just wanted to mention an issue that arose an oral argument uh, that's related to what Shaman just said. If there is a doctrine of international comedy that survives the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, one way we might give effect to that is by having the courts listen to the executive branch about when a case should be dismissed because of foreign policy concerns. The problem with that, of course, is given the history that Shemeng just described, um, that seems to get us right back into a situation in which we are deferring to case-by-case decisions by the executive branch. It, it doesn't have to be exactly the same regime, but there's, there's this concern in FSAI cases about giving too much power to the executive branch because it takes us back to that pre fsia practice that did not work out well.
1: That's an excellent point. And and the other little footnote I'll just add is something I came across yesterday, which is the uh, United States Solicitor General's brief in a a pre-FSIA case uh, called Alfred Dunhill. It actually made the point with respect to another doctrine, uh, the so-called active state doctrine, that that doctrine shouldn't be overused to essentially bring in immunity by the back door. And so the FSIA, although it does create, as Ingrid, indicated this presumption of immunity for certain categories of defendants, also was very much designed to make it easier to sue those defendants when they engaged in uh, commercial activities being the number one exception. And then there's some others we can get into later on. It provides personal and subject matter jurisdiction if an exception to immunity is uh, encompasses the claim, and it provides very explicit instructions on service of process and so forth. So it was, on the one hand, designed to codify immunity, but on the other hand, also to make it much more straightforward for claimants in U.S. courts to be able to assert jurisdiction when appropriate.
3: That's a great lead into my my next question or the the, the next issue I want to put to you. Um, and that's really the FSIA, as you described, really put Congress in the driver's seat on these issues in a lot of ways, set out a statutory framework that superseded certain aspects of prior practice and maybe superseded more as the debate over international comedy and other issues kind of entails this question of how much is Congress replacing of the old regime. And we've seen Congress wrestle with this responsibility. You're you're describing this balance between executive branch rules versus more defined statutory rules, also involving the role of private plaintiffs and the ability for them to engage in litigation that affects foreign entities or doesn't. And one area we've really seen this most commonly the last 20 or 30 years, that's proven kind of instructive in a way, or at least certainly notable of, as a trend, is around questions of terrorism, international terrorism. Ingrid, can you, can you describe that a little bit for us? How has Congress approached this question of accountability for terrorism and how is it related to the sovereign immunity context here?
4: The terrorism exceptions really illustrate how active Congress is in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act space. They uh, Congress has repeatedly amended the statute with terrorism-related issues. Uh, it also... Uh, I think illustrates that Congress is obviously subject to very strong political pressures, um, particularly when it comes to terrorism, for better or for worse. But the first amendments, dealing with specifically dealing with terrorism, were in 1996, and they created an amendment, an exception for state sponsors of terrorism. And so, if the executive branch listed a particular country as a state sponsor of terrorism, then suits, terrorism-related suits against that. Country could go forward. The state sponsors of terrorism list was always very short, but this explains a large number of judgments, in particular against Iran, which was designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, But these initial amendments in 1996, they didn't create a cause of action, and they also uh, didn't really provide any special mechanisms for enforcement. And Congress has acted, um, at first, it created a cause of action for terrorism-related cases, and it has enacted a variety of legislative measures geared toward execution of judgments against countries, in particular Iran. And Congress tends to move quite slowly here, um, makes incremental changes, but there has been a drumbeat toward opening up these cases, opening up the assets in particular of Iran for these judgments. And then Congress made, I think, a, a pretty big move in 2016 with JASTA, a statute that creates a cause of action against foreign states for injury occurring in the United States Caused by an act of international terrorism. Uh, What's different about JASTA is it doesn't require the executive branch to list the defendant as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, So we've seen JASTA cases against Turkey, for example. We've also seen, most significantly, JASTA cases against Saudi Arabia. And indeed, Saudi Arabia was kind of the intended defendant when JASTA was passed, and it was passed with um, the events of nine. 11 in mind, um, and after very significant lobbying by some by some interest groups. Uh, JASTA does not, however, create any special regime for execution of judgments. So it may be very hard for successful plaintiffs to collect. Plaintiffs who are successful, if they receive large uh, awards, will no doubt return to Congress and ask for specific legislation with respect to execution of judgments.
1: That is a great overview, Ingrid. And I think just the two quick things I would add are, number one, of course, the FSIA in its statement of purpose indicates that its goal was to codify the restrictive theory of foreign sovereign immunity under which a state's commercial activities are treated as the activities of any other private party would be for jurisdictional purposes. And Although there's some debate about whether that restrictive theory really was customary international law in the 1970s, I think it's quite clear that it is today. And and maybe the FSI even played some role in helping to catalyze that development. These other exceptions, uh, and terrorism notably, are not universally accepted as an appropriate basis for one state to exercise jurisdiction over the acts of another state in its own domestic courts. And so, although Congress is certainly authorized under US law and well within its power to enact the kinds of legislation that Ingrid just described, uh, it does create some potential tensions and it certainly diverges from the practice of other states to date. The goals I think that Congress has in mind, uh, Ingrid mentioned, you know, they're really constituent demand For this kind of direct access to judicial remedies, although, as she also mentioned, the remedies themselves do prove elusive, especially with respect to states that don't have assets here in the United States that are subject to attachment and execution. So it's a a claims resolution motivation. Claimants understandably feel that diplomatic avenues for recourse have been unsatisfactory and that uh, certainly going to the foreign country's own courts wouldn't result in a satisfactory compensatory regime. And so they look to U.S. courts and and demand access because they feel that, that there are no really alternative avenues that are satisfactory for pursuing relief. And I also think Congress thinks of these exceptions to immunity, the ones that, that go beyond kind of those original 1976 exceptions, as maybe being sort of a, a tool in the United States's foreign policy toolkit, akin to something like sanctions. In other words, a, a way to potentially deter future terrorist activity, uh, in addition to compensating for past activity, and, and whether or not Uh, These are are well designed to actually achieve either of those goals is is a separate question, but I think they're both worth keeping in mind.
4: Shimen, you've raised a a couple of of really terrific issues. If I could linger for just a second on the international law piece of it, as your introduction made clear, there is a backdrop of customary international law at play here. Uh, Customary international law limits the ability of one country to subject a foreign nation to the jurisdiction of its domestic courts, and the United States benefits um, tremendously from this. The United States can not be sued in foreign domestic courts unless one of the exceptions to immunity applies, such as the commercial activity exception. In both the expropriation context and the terrorism context, the United States is perhaps to put it gently sort of pushing the envelope here and perhaps subjecting foreign states to uh, jurisdiction in a way that violates customary international law um, we could talk more about exactly how customary international law is violated and the arguments that's perhaps it's not uh, but there's no question the United States is pushing pushing the envelope here and you know one of the issues that again that came up at oral argument this week is you know concerns with reciprocity you know the United States we like our, our terrorism exception. On the other hand, we enjoy immunity um, in other courts. And once you start making exceptions, it can be hard to limit those.
3: That leads in well into uh, my question for you, Shimen uh, next, because this terrorism model that we've kind of seen uh, an opening of avenues towards civil litigation for private plaintiffs over round terrorism claims against you know foreign sovereigns and foreign sovereign agencies instrumentalities is a model we're seeing begin to be experimented with or at least thought about extending to other realms. Um, You and I have actually sat on this podcast before and talked a little bit about sovereign immunity-related legislation relating to China and the coronavirus and and proposals that were along those lines a few uh, months ago that are still out there. And then more recently, you've done some writing about another set of proposals specifically relating to state-sponsored hacking and cybercrime. Walk us through this a little bit. How are people thinking about taking lessons from this terrorism model and moving into these other issue areas? And what special legal and policy challenges does that pose?
1: I do think that Congress, at least this Congress, has started thinking about amendments to the FSIA as, again, just another tool in its toolkit to pursue various goals, including both deterrence and claims resolution. And so I think You know, as Ingrid may uh, elaborate in a few minutes, it really doesn't have in mind either this international law backdrop uh, or, quite frankly, the reciprocity concerns that have been mentioned. I think there's a feeling... Because the State Department in particular has raised the alarm with respect to prior amendments, such as the terrorism amendments, and at least in Congress's view, the sky has not fallen, uh, it has become a little bit inward, I guess, to those kinds of pushbacks. And so so we can talk on, on sort of a broader level about whether we should view amendments to the FSIA in this way. Uh, I'm certainly of the view that we should not, although I freely admit that I you know, maybe I, I've gone a little bit native after my time at the State Department, but but I, I do think that, that other tools are just categorically different and that the FSIA uh, was designed to serve important purposes that additional pushing the envelope exceptions to use Ingrid's characterization do not serve their purposes number one, and do create a lot of other knock-on effects uh, that may not show up for a while, but that are certainly there, number two. Um, But in the two specific issue areas that have come up recently, Scott, as you mentioned, there uh, is a bill, you know, technically on the Senate calendar, although I don't see the Senate returning to it during the lame duck session, called, I think the acronym at this point is the Stop COVID Act. And uh, it's a a Republican piece of legislation. Uh, The vote in committee was almost exactly uh, along party lines to create an FSIA exception for essentially countries that recklessly fail to inform the world community about an evolving pandemic. And of course, there are, you know, details and and this bill that came out of committee is somewhat more uh, restricted than some of the proposals that had initially been floated. But the general idea is, uh, and I think some have referred to it explicitly as a a JASTA for COVID. And so again, kind of conflating different kinds of issues, different kinds of conduct, you know, on the one hand, acts of international terrorism on US soil. On the other hand, you know, the evolution of a, a virus that although, you know, the more information that comes out, the clearer it appears, at least based on public reporting, that, you know, China is not only where the virus first arose, um, but also that that both local and ultimately and national authorities did conceal important information um, but whether or not that is an appropriate subject for investigation, let alone Uh, resolution in U.S. courts is an entirely separate question. And I think Congress uh, has been conflating the two and, and suggesting that a U.S. court is an appropriate forum for figuring out China's role in the global pandemic, I think, certainly puts much too great a burden on U.S. judges, uh, even in the, the JASTA cases now, uh, some of the ones that are going on in New York uh, district court. You know, they're tremendously difficult evidentiary issues just, you know, to pick one of the many problems, including evidentiary issues raised by the United States's own interest in preserving the confidentiality of its sources and methods and our own intelligence mm-hmm. gathering. So uh, it really does get very complicated when we bring courts into the mix uh, in these kinds of non-commercial cases, uh, at least when when foreign states are are con- where foreign states are concerned, uh, the HACT Act H A C T is a piece of legislation that was put forward in the House. There had been some talk of including it in the most recent NDAA, but I understand it was not included, uh, and I'm very glad that that is the case because it would, as you alluded to in your question, uh, essentially amend the FSIA to allow suits against foreign states for not only kind of malicious spyware type attacks, but really any kind of unauthorized intrusion into U.S. networks. And again, Uh, not only would that really open the floodgates to litigation, create tremendous problems of of attribution, of proof, of figuring out, you know, can you imagine subpoenaing, you know, the U.S. uh, intelligence community members to talk about how they made a particular attribution decision for a particular cyber attack? I mean, really just kind of nightmare scenarios, but also as the United States has made very clear in the public record, we um, also push the envelope, to borrow a phrase, when it comes to our overseas cyber activities. And uh, what was most surprising to me about the Hacked Act, and the reason that our colleague Allison Peters and I uh, wrote in the Lawfare blog about that act, is how many members of Congress seem to kind of jump on the hack bandwagon without apparently thinking through just how expansively it's phrased.
3: So these very broad new proposals about these new kind of scopes of potential litigation and exposure for foreign states and, and their kind of subcomponents, it raises this question that you both have referenced in passing about reciprocity and the idea that the sovereign immunity principles that existing international law are supposed to be reflected to some extent in domestic law and departures from them can cause violations of customary international law and then consequences flowing from that. Ingrid, can you elaborate on that a little bit from us? Like, what is the concern about the United States drifting from the more accepted parameters of sovereign immunity under customary international law with legislative proposals like some of these and like some other developments that have arisen in the FSIA context?
4: Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a great question to, to some extent uh Chemin has already noted that concerns about reciprocity, at least in a very specific sense, have perhaps been overstated in, in the in the past. That is, if you think about reciprocity in a very narrow sense, were the United States is probably unlikely to be subjected to lawsuits involving Anything comparable to Nazi-era art expropriation, because we haven't engaged in that specific kind of conduct. So, if you think of reciprocity and kind of the, those terms, perhaps you'd be most worried about it in the cyber cyber context, as Shemin has has already said. But you know, I think the you know the question more more generally is you know does the United States feel that the, you know, system of foreign sovereign immunity serves it well? And what are the general costs over decades of, of undermining it through legislation um, when it suits our domestic interests? I, I mean, I I can put my cards on the table. I don't think that domestic courts are a very good way of resolving a whole host of international wrongs. And I don't think it's in the U.S. interest or actually in kind of the global interest to see a wider opening of, of many aspects of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Now, of, of course, the act and the customary international law doctrine, you know, has to evolve over time. And to take the cyber context example, and, and actually the terrorism example as well, there is a fairly well-established exception to foreign sovereign immunity when it comes to what we call forum torts, that is tortious conduct in the forum. And this used to mean, you know, uh, a car accident. Uh, You could sue based on that if the foreign sovereign failed to take due care on the territory of the other state. Now, courts have really struggled with how to deal with the forum tort exception when it comes to cyber conduct. And that obviously gets us into where the conduct takes place and where the harm occurs, uh, which is, you know, our, our, our difficult issues in the cyber context. So, you know, I I think on the one hand, the immunity regime will need to evolve to reflect um, different technologies and different and different threats. But uh, you know, I think in in the main, it is a very strong and very important set of constraints that operate on all countries to the benefit of the United States.
1: You know, it's interesting to be having this conversation, Scott and Ingrid, at a moment when the United States, at least the president elect, has committed to re-engage in multilateralism uh, after four years of through ad hoc and, and largely unilateral foreign policy. And although foreign policy and international law are are two different things, they are obviously interconnected. And so I think we've seen both domestically and internationally in the last four years, real pressure on law and also on the sort of supporting norms that that buttress and fill out kind of the codes of conduct that we have, whether it's domestically in governance or internationally with respect to, to the use of force or things like sovereign immunity. And when Ingrid talks about customary international law, just to make sure everyone's On the same page, this is essentially uncodified international law, but that is still absolutely binding. There is a treaty out there on uh, foreign sovereign immunity. It uh, has not entered into force yet, meaning uh, we're still short of the number of ratifications for the treaty to become binding on parties that have ratified it. and, And the United States has not signed, let alone ratified it. So we are dealing with uncodified law. At the international level, at least with respect to foreign states, um, we certainly do have uh, very robust treaties dealing with things like diplomatic and consular immunity, which are separate. So when we talk about law, I think in general and international law in particular, you know there are some who approach it more as kind of a series of inconvenient constraints, and others, uh, notably, I would say many in the military who recognize its extremely important value in, in structuring our relationships. And so th- these kind of longer term effects that Ingrid mentioned, I think, do feel understandably quite abstract to decision makers, especially who are trying to be responsive to the immediate needs and demands of their constituents who, again, uh, don't necessarily internalize just how difficult it will actually be to get payment on any judgment that they might ultimately receive from a U.S. court. Uh, But I also think there are broader conversations maybe to be had in terms of educating decision makers about the importance of international law. The United States is central role in making many of these rules and the way in which in the absence of both U.S leadership and U.S. participation in some of these regimes, uh, there will not just be a vacuum, right? Other countries are going to step in. And so not to get us too far away from our core topic of sovereign immunity, but I think it is connected to this idea that we benefit from living in a rules-based international order and chipping away at fundamental elements of that order, in this case, you know, sometimes for politically expedient reasons, uh, I think is, is, short-sighted and something that that we should be concerned about. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
0: my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and enter code Lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com/slash lawfare20, code lawfare twenty.
3: Let me push back with you on one aspect of that, shimen just at least to play devil's advocate for a moment here. And that is that while there certainly are the benefits provided by these rules-based systems, they they often seem quite remote. And at least in regards to these sorts of proposal we 've been discussing, the terrorism proposal that have been implemented, covid and the hacked act and and hacking bills they 're all aimed at something that 's a little more immediate and concrete in terms of a policy need, or at least a policy desire. And that is kind of a twofold drive. On the one hand, it is to hold foreign actors accountable for bad conduct. And on the other hand, it is to provide a means of providing compensation to American citizens, American nationals who have been damaged by those foreign states' conduct. Uh, And that's a pretty compelling narrative, I think, for a lot of people, at least on first impression. Uh, And certainly, it seems for many members of Congress, it's, it's something that they, take seriously. So I guess my question for both of you, and I'll I'll turn to you first on this, Ingrid, is how effective have these measures that have been implemented, meaning I guess primarily the terrorism context, been at achieving those sorts of dual goals of accountability? And to what extent are there alternatives that might not pose the same tensions with international obligations and, and other issues that we see coming into play here?
4: That's a a terrific topic and theme. I want to just make one quick addendum to something that Chemin said about the Trump administration and custom international law and the Biden administration coming in. I guess I just want to highlight that a lot of the ways that foreign sovereign immunity has been limited by Congress over the past couple of decades um, happened before The Trump administration, you know, JASTA uh, was enacted over President Obama's veto. The terrorism, other terrorism exceptions are long before the the Trump administration. So I guess I don't specifically disagree with a lot of what she said, but I I think we really do need to see these developments in a broader trajectory. And I, I don't think they are caused by, and in some ways, I don't even think they've been accelerated that much by the Trump administration. Um, But putting that aside, yeah, so what should we do? We need to hold foreign actors accountable, foreign actors, foreign governments do lots of bad things that harms U.S. interests, that harms U.S. citizens. What do we do about that other than amending the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act? You know, it didn't used to be that we thought of domestic litigation in U.S. court. As the primary way of redressing. Harm to our citizens caused by foreign governments. We used to negotiate a lot of what are called claim settlement agreements, and these date back to the 1790s and earlier, um, in which basically the State Department goes out and says, "Hey, foreign government, you have uh, well, technically you violated the your obligations to the United States in ways that have harmed our citizens. Why don't you um, pay us some money, and we will compensate our citizens?" part of the doctrine is called espousal. And, you know, this is great examples um, with respect to Mexican returning to expropriation, right, where Mexico expropriated um, a large amount of of U.S. property in the 1920s and 30s, and we get these claim settlement agreements um, negotiated by Cordell Hall, and a lot of money winds up in the U.S. Treasury, and then the United States uh, winds up then distributing that to the people who were, were harmed. So there are, and historically, and That's how we deal with these problems, not through litigation. And uh, I think it would be uh, helpful for folks to keep that in mind. Now, there, of course, is a relationship, especially today, between the threat of domestic litigation and the willingness of a foreign sovereign to come to the table to return to the Nazi examples. There are a variety of executive agreements concluded with Austria germany and switzerland in the 1980s and 1990s um, that were primarily brought about by the fear of litigation in u.s courts so there's no question that opening up r- reducing some immunity might bring foreign sovereigns to the table in terms of, of negotiations and in fact jasta explicitly contemplates that possibility um, and i think Shimen probably has more to add here but just to just to return to the you asked how effective are are these measures? I don't think there's a lot of free money sitting out there, and you know some of these judgments um, wind up being satisfied by assets that have been frozen by the U.S. government that might be used for other other purposes. I think if we start seizing Chinese assets in the United States, um, that will have a huge impact on trade and foreign direct investment. So I don't I don't see a big Pot of free money out there, Scott. But I'll I'll let Shaman speak to that too. Oh,
1: wow, there's just yeah, there's so much to talk about and, and too little time. But it's the accountability piece. I think Scott is is extremely important, and so many people, of course, feel vindicated just by having a judgment from a court, uh, even if they're ultimately unable to execute that judgment and uh, obtain financial redress. So it's very important for for us certainly not to play that down. It's a little unsatisfying, I think, in international law, um, what the International Court of Justice has in fact uh, made clear that immunity really is procedural, not substantive. It does not In any way, absolve a foreign state from uh, legal, let alone sort of ethical responsibility for its wrongful conduct. It, quote unquote, merely says that another country's domestic courts are not the appropriate forum to resolve. Uh, disputes and and so you know the ICJ the International Court has kind of reconciled this accountability imperative with the international law of immunity by saying well well there's still responsibility I, I do think that's unsatisfying because the, the claimant then says okay but where's where's the concrete manifestation of that responsibility where's my judgment where's my official pronouncement that this conduct violated my rights so there is an indisputable tension there. A couple of things could be done, though, precisely because, as as Ingrid mentions, uh, there aren't unlimited funds out there. I mean, some of these suits against China that have been filed are literally for hundreds of trillions of dollars. And, you know, if U.S. claimants have a basis for suing China, then I suppose not only do claimants worldwide have a basis for suing China, but other uh, claimants would also have a basis then for suing the United States for our Again, based on the public record, apparent at a minimum interference with the Centers for Disease Controls reporting and aggregation of various statistics, uh, our failure to implement measures in terms of of outbound transmission of the virus from the United States. So uh, it does get very thorny. But I think one thing we could do, perhaps, is think about ways to align Uh, Executive branch incentives in claim settlement more closely uh, with the incentives that Congress people have to be responsive to their constituents. Because I do think that some of these terrorism exceptions, which uh, Ingrid, of course, very accurately pointed out, come from a long time ago and and have had bipartisan support in Congress, although uh, pushed back by the executive branch, uh, I think some of them do stem from a deep frustration with the executive branch and with the perceived or even actual inadequacy of its claim settlement efforts, uh, the fact that it's constantly, uh, of course, juggling multiple priorities in foreign policy, and so uh, the individual needs of claimants don't necessarily rise to the top of the heap, or if they do, uh, are deemed to conflict with other imperatives that are equally, if not more Pressing, and so I think that is that is a real conundrum. I will say, you know, even though I, I didn't intend to suggest and I'm gladingrid set us straight uh, that there's been a causal relationship between the unilateralism of the Trump administration and and the FSIA exceptions specifically, as opposed to sort of a more general renunciation of of various multilateral treaties and so forth. I do think the COVID uh, exceptions are different, right? As I mentioned, they really uh, have not been supported by and large, by Democrats. And I think, uh, in addition to all of the reasons we've discussed, there's another important reason that Democrats have not uh, gotten on this bandwagon. And that's because they recognize, in my personal opinion, uh, appropriately, that Uh, This really is more of a political stunt uh, than it is a genuine effort to seek compensation. And and I'll explain that a little bit because that's something I've resisted saying in public, especially since, you know, earlier in the summer, I testified before Congress on this issue. And so I definitely didn't want to venture any characterizations there. Uh, but here, I think it, it's appropriate to do so, especially seeing how how this has evolved and the conversation has evolved over the summer. So the degree to which uh, the COVID pandemic has become politicized in the United States, I think, is abhorrent. Uh, and it's so demonstrably contributing to a, a prolonged and much more lethal pandemic than we would otherwise have experienced. And so to my mind, I think it, it's quite clear that the legislators who put this proposal on the table months ago did so as part of an overarching narrative that is also reflected in the decision of the president to label this the China virus, uh, a, a real blame China strategy that ironically is in tension with the president's statements early in the spring that that China was doing a great job and being very collaborative, but consistency has not been a hallmark of this administration. So, you know, this this blame China narrative, I think, really is what's been driving these proposals. And so although it certainly shares features with the the terrorism exceptions that were passed on a bipartisan basis, it's also very much bound up in, in this kind of messaging Campaign, and so what we should really do to give people relief from COVID is take measures and consistent measures to promote public health here at home. And you know, to a certain extent, the horses left the barn on that, and and it's really a shame that economic shutdown seems to be the most kind of the go-to response when uh, some other things like just wearing masks would be so much easier. But in any event, uh, I think defensive measures are really in order and that applies also in the cyber realm you know on the one hand we certainly want to try to find how to compensate victims of cyber crime on the other hand you know maybe devoting those resources to building more robust uh, infrastructure to educating people about how hacking happens and how to be on the lookout for it. Of course, you know, those who have already been injured will take little comfort in defensive measures. But seeking compensation and accountability is very much an after the fact uh, set of priorities. And I think maybe on some of these issues, we need to think long and hard about preventive measures as well.
3: So, you know, these have been areas we've been discussing where Congress is exploring these new models and new ways to adjust the law around sovereign immunities. But there are also a number of other areas where we haven't seen Congress as involved and where arguably some people, whether it's the courts or whether it's uh, scholars like yourselves, have advocated for Congress to become actively more involved, at least to clarify some of the confusion that's, that's still there regarding the outer parameters uh, and full scope of the FSIA. The cases before the Supreme Court are, are one example of that to some degree. Uh, I don't know if anybody was clamoring for Congress to clarify the application of international comedy, but it's certainly there is an outstanding question Congress could have stepped in to address. But another one that uh, you've written about a fair amount, Chimen, is this question of how the FSIA applies in the criminal context. Tell us a little bit about that and the questions that have arisen and how Congress might be able to play a productive role in clarifying the law around them.
1: Uh, sure. And, and I've also got some writing available on this for folks who want to dive into the details. But the, the basic uh, two unanswered questions, and I think Ingrid will, will address at least one of them as well. We now know uh, after a, a 2010 decision by the Supreme Court that the immunities of individual foreign officials simply fall outside the scope of the FSIA. The FSIA doesn't address them one way or the other, although, as I mentioned, at least with respect to diplomats and consular officials, uh, there's quite robust treaty law and also domestic statutory law, but but there are plenty of officials who are neither diplomats nor consuls and uh, their immunities remain uncodified at the moment. There's also, uh, I think, an increasing recognition uh, uh, that Congress uh, did not speak explicitly to whether its intent in 1976 was to say the only jurisdiction that will exist over foreign states and their agencies and instrumentalities shall be civil jurisdiction. Or whether it was simply thinking, uh, as we mentioned, about the civil litigation context when it enacted the FSIA, uh, hence some of its provisions, as I mentioned, that uh, essentially create uh, a long-arm statute over foreign states and their agencies and instrumentalities for conduct that falls within an enumerated exception. The the FSIA itself is codified in Title 28 of the U.S. Code, which, for those of you who remember civil procedure, is, is really the section that talks about civil litigation and and courts in that context. And so I've dug fairly deeply into this and my interest in it, uh, and this is something Ingrid has blogged about as well, uh, arose about a year ago when, um, as listeners might remember, an entire floor of the D.C. Circuit Courthouse was shut down for arguments in in what was referred to at the time as this mystery subpoena case. Uh, I think we've very recently learned that the subpoena was most likely uh, directed towards an Egyptian state bank, that there was an investigation, sort of a follow-on of the Mueller investigation, looking into apparently suspicious $10 million transaction with with the Trump campaign. And the bank in that case, even though, of course, it was not a defendant in a civil suit, as as we've been discussing thus far, was a subpoena target. And so the, the grand jury issued a subpoena and the bank made the argument, which had been made unsuccessfully a couple of times before by other uh, state-owned or state-affiliated entities, made the argument that it was immune from the subpoena because the FSIA only confers jurisdiction over civil suits and by its terms essentially uh, erases or deprives courts of jurisdiction over anything else. So again, I I think that's not a well-founded argument. Uh, It did not win in the D.C. Circuit. The Supreme Court did not grant review, uh, and so, so it remains to be seen what the Supreme Court eventually thinks about it. There are both there are cases in both the, the Second and Ninth Circuits now that involve this issue, but it's something that I think was not on Congress's mind in the 70s, but perhaps should be going forward, uh, given that this issue seems to be arising with somewhat more frequency. And
3: another issue we've seen in the headlines really just in the last few weeks is this question of how sovereign immunity extends and what circumstances it extends to different foreign officials uh, and heads of state. Just in the last few weeks, we've seen civil suits launched against, perhaps most notably, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia in relation to the Khashoggi killing and actions he took against other kind of expatriate dissidents from Saudi Arabia in U.S. court. And it's... It seems almost certainly to implicate this question as to what extent either the crown prince or his conduct might qualify for sovereign immunity. And these questions of how foreign official immunity uh, actually operates in the United States is a little different in part because it's been seen as outside the scope of the FSIA. Ingrid, can you tell us a little bit about that? I know these are issues that you've looked at very closely and uh, where it, it seems that Congress hasn't really uh, stepped in, much like the criminal context, to, to provide much guidelines.
4: Uh, yes it is a, is a bit ironic that congress keeps stepping in on lots of immunity topics but not the ones that many folks in the immunity community would like to see some congressional action. So yeah, foreign official immunity brings together a set of unresolved constitutional issues and unresolved issues of international law. Basically, foreign official immunity, as Shemin said, is not covered by the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And so when an individual official is sued, the immunity to which he or she is entitled is governed by federal common law. Uh, The source of the court's power to make federal common law under these circumstances is at least somewhat disputed. A second separation of powers question arises because the State Department has argued that it has the legal power to make um, immunity determinations that are binding on the courts. And I think that is unconstitutional. And I've written something called the case against the State Department that argues that the State Department lacks that constitutional power. And and the other policy matter, which is super important on foreign official immunity, is to what extent should it track state immunity itself? Um, To what extent should we make, you know, Saudi Arabia immune from suit, but open up the officials that work for Saudi Arabia to suit? These are important policy considerations that I think it would be super helpful if Congress addressed. Uh, another lingering question that is is raised by some of the examples that Shemen gave and may have occurred to the litigators in the audience is, what about personal jurisdiction? Which of these suits, potential suits against China about COVID, which, when would there be personal jurisdiction? Lower courts have held that foreign states have no due process rights because they are not persons. That's based on some unfortunate dicta in the Supreme Court. The historical Record is is absolutely entirely clear that foreign states would have been considered persons uh, within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment due process clause and are entitled to the same kinds of protections that individual foreign defendants to which they would be entitled. So lots of work for Congress, Scott, and lots of work for the courts. Immunity is an area that gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. And gives.
1: Uh, indeed. And I think that immunity community that you referenced, uh, Ingrid, is is perhaps going to grow as a result. Yeah, on foreign official immunity, I agree. I mean, they, they, as the Salmon Tar Court, that 2010 decision I referenced earlier, observed, uh, official immunity and state immunity are not congruent. So, for example, under the restrictive theory, we make states you know answerable or suable in u s courts for their commercial activities, uh, you know with certain nexus requirements and and other things. Uh, but generally speaking, if a, a foreign official you know signs a purchasing or procurement contract on behalf of a foreign state, that official is not going to be personally liable for for breach of contract uh, nor would that official generally be subject to jurisdiction. And so in the the, the commercial activity exception doesn't really translate into the the foreign official or natural person context. That's just one example. Uh, On the other hand, you know, there are really interesting questions about particularly foreign officials who come to the United States and even some who who retire here, you know, should they be allowed to uh, live free from U.S. jurisdiction alongside uh, their former victims who are here as part of an expat community Uh, and certainly The Torture Victim Protection Act, just to take one example, provides a cause of action, a civil cause of action for torture uh, performed under color of foreign law. So you can imagine that generally speaking, uh, defendants in what we call TBPA actions will be foreign officials. And so unless they're diplomats or heads of state, there may be good arguments for not recognizing claims to immunity in those circumstances. However, because foreign officials don't come within the scope of the FSIA, uh, that also means that there's no one-stop shopping for things, as Ingrid mentioned, like personal jurisdiction. So those limitations would kick in, of course, as might other applicable doctrines, you know, whether it's, uh, again, for Civ ProBuf's failure to state a claim or, or other kinds of bases for dismissal of these suits beyond immunity. Uh, the only footnote I'll add is just a really interesting case before the Ninth Circuit right now involving a suit by WhatsApp against uh, the Israeli private company, NSO Group, for alleged hacking. And the NSO Group is now alleging uh, that it should be considered a foreign official. Of states in general, not any particular state, but it argues that because its customers are exclusively foreign states, it should benefit from this kind of salmon tar category of foreign official immunity. Uh, and so we'll see where that goes. But lots of, lots of creative arguments there. And as Ingrid said, uh, lots of issues for academics, policymakers, and litigants to explore.
3: I want to put this to to both of you just for some last kind of final thoughts. We've kind of traced over the course of this conversation the evolution of the FSIA from 1976 to the present day, from the vision of a law that uh, was intended to pull kind of the certainly the executive branch uh, and to some extent the United States out of more politicized debates around immunities issues and to put them in a more rule of law framework, and that succeeded to do that in some regards while at the same time opening and implicating an array of other political questions, uh, policy questions regarding uh, how immunity impacts in, in certain issue areas that are of particular concern to Congress at least, or, or the certain people in Congress certainly. Tell us about the trajectory of the FSIA from here moving forward. What are the next Fifty or so years of the FSIA's history look like in in your view. Is it a valuable tool that's that Congress is going to step in to hopefully fill these lacuna, provide additional clarity, continue on the rule of law evolution that it really took a huge leap towards in terms of making sovereign immunity much more of a a legal question, or is there a movement back towards more uh, political determination, more political approaches, at least in the separation of powers context, to questions of sovereign immunity? And Ingrid, I'll start with you.
4: Uh, thank you, Scott. and I'll just take this opportunity to thank you again and also to say what a pleasure it is to talk about immunity with Shimon Keitner. What a treat. I want to note that some of the the pressure on the immunity regime comes from slightly different places. And that's evident from the two issue areas we've looked at most recently. Some of the pressure on the immunity regime comes from uh, human rights litigation. And the expropriation cases that we started the hour talking about fit into that, right? These are people in in Hungary and um, in Germany who were the victims of of, of terrible actions by the German and Hungarian governments. Um, Saudi Arabia, obviously, has harmed folks, including Khashoggi. And there's a question, to what extent should these human rights cases about bad things that happen around the world be uh, resolved in U.S. courts? And a lot of pressure on the immunity regime, especially in the courts and especially in the context of foreign official immunity, comes from this desire for the United States to be a forum um, in which justice is finally um, meted out to bad actors. That's a little bit different, perhaps, than the pressure on the foreign sovereign immunity regime that comes from harm to U.S. citizens—that's a pressure that we've obviously talked about with respect to cyber and and COVID and the terrorism exceptions. And and you know when we when we think about the the future um, and how how we're going to deal with immunity, it, it, it's interesting to think about the global position of the United States. It it feels to me like the moments or the decades of exceptionalism have perhaps past. And even the, you know, appetite to be an epicenter for human rights litigation may be waning a bit. Uh, With respect to harm to U.S. citizens, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. And I'm not exactly even sure what the right balance is between the executive branch, Congress, and the courts. But I am sure it will continue to be a moving target.
1: Uh, well, likewise, just adding my thanks to the chorus, both to you, Scott, and to Ingrid Worth, who, again, is yes the ideal interlocutor on these issues. Uh, it is ironic, I think, that the Department of Justice and the State Department uh, in the early 1970s came to Congress basically asking them to codify foreign sovereign immunity in order to depoliticize it and to make it more predictable for litigants. And then here we have now a conversation uh, that is, if nothing else, uh, shown all the ways in which the regime has become quite unpredictable and unstable, at least with respect to certain discrete issue areas, uh, although, of course, quite successful in more run-of-the-mill litigation. Uh, So I really think we're at an inflection point. I think that the Hacked Act and the Stop COVID Act are perhaps emblematic of a, of a trend to looking at amendments to the FSIA as, you know, just another tool in Congress's toolkit. Uh, and I think that would really be a mistake for all of the reasons that we've discussed. I think that they come from different places. Again, the HACT Act having uh, at least uh, had initially before people thought twice about it, uh, I think bipartisan Support. Um, and so maybe the product just a little bit more of, of, of knee-jerk uh piling on as opposed to to serious reflection. The COVID bill, quite differently, that are really, as I mentioned, you know, public relations goal, which is not entirely inappropriate for, for legislation. Of course, uh, that is one way that that Congress, you know, attempts to be responsive to the needs of the American people, but in this Case, I really think you know it's been in lieu of the the measures that that Congress really should have been focused on. So if, if these two pieces of legislation do not move forward, if what we're left with at the end of the day is the terrorism exceptions, uh, and if we then get some experience under, in particular, the newest exception, the JASTA exception, and, and see whether, you know, it results in uh, compensation from Saudi Arabia for the 9-11 attacks or not, then maybe we'll have some more data points um, in figuring out whether or not it's it's an experiment worth trying in other contexts. I think my assessment at the moment quite clearly is that it is not, that, that the attempt to create leverage by carving off, uh, hiving off different Uh, kinds of activities, state activities from the core of sovereign immunity, it will not ultimately result in the hoped for uh, settlements and moreover, will have dangerous knock-on effects. But, uh, you know, although it may be an unsatisfying note to end on, I think Ingrid is right. Time will tell. Uh, but I don't think that the outcome at this point is predetermined. I really do think it, it is in Congress's hands because that's where uh, DOJ and state put it, even though maybe they've lived to regret that. And I think that that conversations like this one hopefully will help to bring to light some of the considerations that that may not always be front of mind when discussing these issues.
3: Well, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave the discussion there. Ingrid Wirth, Shaman Keitner, thank you for joining me today on The Lawfare Podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. In addition, the discussion in this episode originated with a session of the Congressional Study Group on Foreign Relations and National Security, a project sponsored by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. This podcast was engineered by Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patcha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.